I wish Representative Weiner and his lovely wife uh, well. Uh, you know, obviously, has been a tough uh, incident for him, uh, but I'm, I'm confident that uh, they'll refocus and uh, he'll refocus, and, and they'll end up to being able to bounce back. This is the middle with Anthony Weiner, unplugged. Welcome to episode four of The Middle Unplugged, a break in the middle of the week when we reclaim the microphone from the far left and the far right and try to carve out some time for a less shrill and less extreme and generally less angry conversation. Well, the dust has settled. Victory laps are being taken. Chuck Schumer's taking a victory lap. You know, he made a smart call. He backed some of those MAGA Republicans, gave Democratic cash to them, took some lumps for doing it because he knew they'd be weaker well, he hoped they'd be weaker opponents, and sure enough, they were. Lee Zeldin is taking his victory lap. New York was the Republican beachhead that might have been the difference between this being a complete disaster to just being a mostly disaster for Republicans. And now there's some talk that Lee Zeldin might be just perfect to be the national chairman of the GOP. I'm taking a victory lap. You might have heard me this weekend on the Middle Right radio show at 2 o'clock on Saturdays where... I played back some of my predictions. I did very well. I said 51 for the Democrats. It turned out to be 51. I said GOP plus 20. It looked like it's going to be closer to plus five or six or seven. But still, I thought that there were some signs. So I'm taking a little bit of a victory lap. But the blame game is also in full force. Now that we've seen the results come in, they're mostly in at this point. Here in New York, the progressives are blaming the chairman of the Democratic Party and the mayor. I guess they're blaming the governor as well, the former governor. And this government, the Lemming Hochul as well. The moderates are blaming the woke mob for missing the problem of crime and how the depth of that concern. And they're also blaming the progressives in the state legislature for being piggish about redistricting. Remember, they drew lines that were so over the top that they were struck down. If they would have just drawn reasonable lines, just good lines for Democrats, they might have been upheld. So there's a lot of a lot of infighting going on among Democrats here in New York. And then nationally, Rupert Murdoch, the New York Post, institutional Republicans, left and right, have all decided that they know the problem. It is my one of my D's, the Donald, is the problem that they see. They see that's the reason that this turned out to be a disastrous or at least an unexpectedly bad midterm election for the Republicans. Just listen to this. You're going to hear two voices here. The first you'll hear is New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu. And then you're going to hear Chuck Todd asking Senator Cassidy of Louisiana a question. Right. Let's go back to the 2020 election. Joe Biden was the most moderate of all the candidates running on the Democrat side. He was deemed the most moderate of both he and, and Donald Trump. So America has been asking for more moderation for quite some time. Uh, there's just, you know, certain parts of, of uh, the Republican Party that haven't listened so well. We just got to get back to basics. It's not unf unfixable. We just got to get back to basics. Well, one of those issues is getting back to basics and perhaps looking to the future. One of the things we saw across the country is governors who denied the election results in 2020. Secretary of state candidates who denied the election results of 2020 lost this time around. Does the Republican Party have to put away that election denialism once and for all? 
Well, I think we had to do that back in like on November 10th of 2020. I mean, that's just, we should have been moving on from, from that stuff immediately. So um, clearly it is not a, a good strategy. It's nothing that works. Sure, it, it taps into a, an extreme base and a fire that's there with, with some folks. But at the end of the day, you can't govern if you don't win. And all that matters is winning in November. And so a lot of these candidates, I think, forgot that. I think they went way too far right uh, in, in some of their, their primaries. I think they let the media, they let the other side define them. If this is the result of these elections, but the Republican Party still has sort of the same leadership at RNC, Ronna McDaniel, Kevin McCarthy of House Republicans, Mitch McConnell of Senate Republicans, and of course Donald Trump is sort of the, the leader out there. If there's no change there, um, do you think that's a problem for Republicans going forward? First, we're not a cult. Well, here's a pro tip for you. If you're ever listening to a politician and the first thing he says in answer to a question is, we are not a cult, that means that someone's in a cult. And oh, and about Chris Sununu, who, by the way, you may remember that name. He is the son of the former governor of New Hampshire and also the chief of staff to H.W. Walker Bush. You know, he supported a guy for the United States Senate in New Hampshire, Dan Baldick, who was arguably the most crazy, wackadoo, out there, election denier, Trumpy kind of guy. So he's, his hands aren't completely clean. But the point is the same, is that the verdict is in. They've decided, okay, Trump is the problem. The thing I don't get about this is what made them suddenly notice that Trump was the problem. What's the new information that they had? They saw, was it the lies? They said the same exact thing on January 6th. They said the same exact thing with the Inside Hollywood thing came out during the campaign. They said the same exact thing after he made comments about Charlotte, Charlottesville. You know, there's not a heck of a lot of new information we really got from these midterms, right? Donald Trump lost the popular vote in 2020 by 6 million. Before that, he lost the popular vote by 3 million. His party got shellacked in 2017, the first time you know, when the Virginia legislature turned and they lost the Virginia governorship. In the midterm elections of 2018, when Donald Trump was the president, the party got shellacked there. The Democrats picked up 41 seats. When he left office, now admittedly this was after January 6th and everything else, he had an approval rating of 34%. The highest he ever had was only, I think, nine points higher than that. His average as president was 41%. That means that about 60% of Americans steadfastly didn't like him. So what's new? I mean, what is the new information that's suddenly leading this conclusion that Donald Trump's support? Now, it's true, obviously. He handpicked these candidates for Senate. He very often crossed swords with other Republicans in order to do it. And to a person, at least in the big races, unless you want to consider J.D. Vance his win, Ohio is a pretty conservative state, but all right, I'll give him J.D. Vance. But to a person, his Trump candidates lost. So what is it that's really all that new? This idea that Donald Trump doesn't care about the Republican Party and is harming it, hasn't that been obvious for the longest time? <laughs> You know, did Mitch McConnell's never gotten along with Donald Trump for that reason. But, you know, so this whole idea that they are going to kind of walk away from Donald Trump now that he's announced that he is going to be running for president again, I don't believe it. It comes down to the very same thing that it has always been true about the Republican Party and Don in their relationship with Donald Trump. While it's true, Donald Trump is unpopular. He is insanely over, and I use that word <laughs> almost literally, he is insanely popular with the Republican primary base. 
And what is going to happen? The Republican Party is going to learn what they've learned again and again since he walked down that escalator in 2015. That you are either on that Donald Trump bandwagon or you are under that Donald Trump bandwagon. So what, you know, what is Donald Trump is not in it for the Republican Party. He might not even be in it to win. He might be just in it to make it harder to be for him to be indicted by the Justice Department. He might just be in it because he feels aggrieved that he can't imagine how he lost the election in 2020. This might be just about personal grievance with him. It might be just he feels that Ron DeSantis is overrated or wouldn't have been there without Donald Trump. Whatever it is, this whole idea that suddenly the Republican Party wakes up and says, oh, Donald Trump's the fault. Yeah, okay. <laughs> he is the problem with the Republican Party. Generationally, he's the problem, that he's driving them off this cliff. But they're not going to walk away from him and stay away. The moment they start hearing from their primary voters, from their base voters, they're going to run back into his warm embrace. So I don't, they're going to try to embrace him. And now in the House, the House of Representatives, we now know that the Republicans have held on. As I sit here, it's only by a couple of seats, but it'll be by a couple of seats. And the Republicans now have to pick a speaker. And good luck with that. Because the speaker has basically two bad choices. Whoever's going to win, they have to either give in to the idea that individual members have more power to disrupt the place, which is what these Freedom Caucus people want, And that's bad for the speaker because if you give individual members more power, then holding, you know, running to getting anything done is going to be much more difficult because you're going to have a problem with four or five or six or eight or 10 of them walking off the reservation on every vote and then nothing gets passed. Or you refuse to go along with those changes. You say, I need to be a strong speaker. I, I refuse to go along with those changes. And they basically elect someone who will. I mean, that's what we learned. You know, Paul Ryan walked away from the job. John Boehner walked away from the job because the lunatics run the asylum in this scenario. So is there another way? Is there another way to get to 218 votes? Well, what'll probably happen is one of the two scenarios I just described, meaning Kevin McCarthy goes to these guys and said, I will capitulate to some request that the Freedom Caucus makes in order to get the votes in order to be speaker. Everyone has to vote for me when we get to the floor. Now, I'll explain the the process. The process is interesting. All he has to do is win his caucus, meaning get a majority plus one of his caucus. Then he becomes the nominee of the caucus. But then he's got to go to the floor of Congress and then get elected by the entire 435 members. So that's when Democrats get to vote. And if they hold together and they've got 215 or so, or they've got 214 or 212 or whatever it is, and they hold together, that means that McCarthy can't afford to lose more than four or five people. So that's the scenario. That's the most likely scenario. Another scenario is one of these Freedom Caucus members challenges McCarthy and McCarthy loses. Or a compromise candidate comes along that unifies all the Republicans and they go out. That's Those are the most likely scenarios. But what is the wild card scenario? The wild card scenario is we're such a closely divided Congress. What if the minority party, meaning the Democrats, say, you know what? There might be a Republican or two who are moderate enough that we can support them. And we know that there are a handful of kind of the normal caucus, the Liz Cheney types that live in that Republican party very uncomfortably. What if Democrats say, you know what? We'll make one of you guys speaker. The Republicans nominally get the speakership, but they do it with Democratic votes. And the deal the Democrats make is like, look, you divide up the chairmanships, maybe give us a couple, give the Republicans a couple. You give us certain concessions on that usually the minority party doesn't get in terms of access to the floor. 
and Liz Cheney becomes the speaker, or someone like Liz Cheney becomes the speaker. Republicans control the House, but it's really the Democrats that give them the votes to do it. Now, that's the less likely scenario. It's not impossible, but it's, it is the less likely scenario. And as, as, as sophisticated listeners to this podcast know, you don't have to be a member of the House of Representatives to be the speaker. Remember, they were talking about Donald Trump becoming the speaker a while ago. So that's what's likely to happen. And it couldn't happen to a nicer bunch. I know Kevin McCarthy a little bit. He was one of the young guns that came along. I think after I got elected, one of the young guns, him, Eric Cantor was one, Paul Ryan was one. I think there was one other, and I can't put my finger on who that other one might have been. He's not a bad guy. He's a nice enough guy. But as a strategist, I question his ability to pull this together. And by the way, why would you, who would want to, this is going to be so hard for them. And what are the Democrats kind of rooting for quietly? They're rooting for chaos. We're rooting for chaos because what is the path for Joe Biden getting reelected in 2024? A certain amount of chaos. That's always been the path. Having a moderately unpopular president always gets his wings under him. Is that the expression? Always gets his legs under him. Like Bill Clinton did with the overreaching on impeachment, like Obama did with the Tea Party Republicans. Joe Biden will stand up in 2024 and he will say, I am the adult that is in this room. You need to elect me because look how crazy these Republicans are. And so we'll see if that winds up happening. So the lunatics are running the asylum in the House of Representatives, in the Senate. I think it's going to be more orderly. These senators, they have these personal, they like having Mitch McConnell take the slings and arrows. And especially if it looks like Donald Trump is going to, they're going to have to deal with Donald Trump now for the campaign. Having Mitch McConnell running their show doesn't strike many of them as being such a bad place to be. So I think he will wind up being fine. And again, listening to the Ted Cruz's posture for the left and Lindsey Graham's posture for the right, rather, you know, calling out the Mitch McConnell for how he behaved during this election. Remember what this is to roll back the tape a little bit. Mitch McConnell did not like many of the choices that Donald Trump made because he thought they were unelectable. And he spent his money, and it's a lot of it, he spent his money accordingly and pulled money out from Blake Masters, for example, close to the election and moved it elsewhere. And so some of the revisionist history by the Trumpites, including Cruz apparently, is, oh my God, this was an outrageous, these were outrageous decisions that Blake Masters came close, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, but the original sin of putting the Republicans in this position was their adoption of the of the Donald Trump candidates as the nominees of the party. And that's the thing that ultimately, so Mitch McConnell was trying to deal with it from uh, there on out. I'm not, I'm not going to defend Mitch McConnell. He's the minority leader and I'm glad about that. By the way, a quick word about Georgia. Georgia will be the 51st seat for the, for the Democrats. And you, you noticed in my introduction, I put them in the win column. I think for the Democrats rather, I think that Georgia becomes almost a foregone conclusion. I think the Republicans aren't going to waste much of their resources there. It's a very important race for the Democrats because we have a Joe Manchin, Kristen Sinema problem that having one, we have to worry about one less of them is helpful. And we have a disastrous 2024 lineup in terms of which of our candidates are up for re-election 2024. So I think the Democrats are going to go hard at this. But I see no reason to believe now that Donald Trump has thrown his hat into the ring, no reason to believe that George is going to go differently. One of the unspoken things is that the the races this year in the midterms followed as they did in 2020 to a very large degree because they became referendums on Trump. That's going to be even more so in Georgia. So that's what's going on there. They're blaming Trump, I think, unfairly. 
well, I don't think it's unfair. They should blame him, but I think it's unfair that they can kind of wash their hands. They made this guy. They pumped. They went along with all of these things. And now it's kind of late for them to turn back. Chaos in the house. If I had to make a prediction, I would say McCarthy. I don't know. I said this weekend on the middle, and I think I said it with Curtis as well on left versus right, that I thought McCarthy would not pull it out. But, you know, these compromise candidates come along. Denny Hastert was one such instance. Maybe they'll have one of those. All right, I'm going to, since I know you love my prediction, I have such a high percentage of, of correct ones. I'm going to say McCarthy does not pull this bad boy out. I could be wrong. And when we get back, we're going to dip into the mailbag. That's something we do here on The Middle Unplug, where we take a look at the tweets and the letters that come in. And I take a look at one of them and try to respond. They're usually mostly nice. Recently, they've been a little more snarky. And we come back, we'll dip into The Middle Unplug mailbag. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. So I'm on Twitter. Don't rub it in. At Rep Wiener, R-E-P-W-E-I-N-E-R. Facebook, I think it's Anthony D. Wiener, also WienerWABC at gmail.com. And what we like to do on The Middle Unplugged is, unlike on The Middle, the radio show I do every Saturday at 2 o'clock at 77 WABC and all around the globe on the app, is obviously I get calls. And and that's a great part of the show here in the mailbag. We take a look at a tweet. We take a look at a an email we got. And today we're going to go to Twitter again, and it's from someone named at Jack Gattinella. And he responds to a tweet. I'm trying to find my footing on Twitter. You all know that me and Twitter have had a tempestuous relationship. I had my scandal when I accidentally posted something on Twitter, and and that ultimately led to the undoing of my career in public life. And so, by the way, I don't blame Twitter. <laughs> it was me. Twitter didn't do anything to me. I did it. But so what I do on Twitter is I sometimes use it to promote my shows. I sometimes every once in a while make an observation. Some This little space I've carved out is I kind of use, the since I'm not going to run for office again, I use the space to kind of point out things that are going on in Washington that maybe only an insider might know. Or Anyway, so there was a tweet from Nancy Pelosi where she tweeted this very nice photograph of the entire House of Representatives sitting all together kind of during orientation. And what happens in orientation is that, and I pointed this out, I said that they get together one, they get us all together one time, and then everyone is separated into their Democratic and Republican caucus. That one time is the only time we get together. And what I pointed out is that they should have us intermingling more. Like we do have relationships across the aisle, but it is hard. Institutionally and structurally, they discourage them. And I said in a tweet after seeing this picture, this is great. I would hope that they have gatherings like this more. It would help for people to be able to work together across the aisle. And at Jack Gattinella responds, mingling, there have to be at least, and then he says at least in quotes, a few in the chamber who are laughing about her husband getting attacked not too long ago, referring to Nancy Pelosi. The animosity has got to be thicker than London fog. And Jack's not wrong. There was a lot of that going on. There was a lot of snickering at the um, at the 
the attack on and the uh, the uh, political assassination attempt and kidnapping attempt that was targeting Nancy Pelosi. And let's face it, probably in that room, mm, 200 <laughs> Republicans who had been attacking Nancy Pelosi in all of their commercials. But that, in a way, is my point. That the more you humanize one another by getting each other to meet in a room, to getting each other to hear, you know, to have these orientations to some degree together, and it does happen one other place. The when you're a freshman, Harvard University School, the Kennedy School, they hold an orientation of their own where they kind of go over process and explain some of the things that they don't throw. It's kind of like you know college prep. Up at Harvard. So they do it there. But in Washington, it happens very little. They immediately separate you. Once they kind of tell you some of the stuff about payroll and everything else, they separate you into your two caucuses. My point, and I thank you, Jack, my point is exactly that, is if they get a chance to see one another and see Nancy Pelosi and see their colleagues and see their fellow freshmen, and spend some time together, you realize that people don't have horns, that these people went through tough campaigns just like you did, that they they might have won 51-49, you might have won 55-45 in the other direction, but you have something in common, and that is this fundamental notion that wherever you come from in the country, your constituents do have certain commonalities, and your districts have commonalities, and even if they don't, hearing the stories of the other side, hearing the understandings, the conceptions, the misconceptions. Some of the most important conversations I had in my time of Congress was sitting down with people from rural areas, and sometimes I would even go on trips with them and hearing about their districts. The conversations that I had around guns, to listen to my Democratic colleagues who were strong NRA supporters, to hear, have them hear about my experience, how guns ravage my community, and hear them talk about the culture of hunting and the culture of gun ownership they had in theirs. That helps break down these barriers. You know, now I call this program the middle, the middle unplugged, because fundamentally, I believe that we have a lot. The Venn diagram of interests has much more overlap than I think many people give it credit for. And I don't delude myself. What Jack says isn't wrong, that there is a lot of animosity that hangs out there. And there are people that are not operating in good faith, the faith, the Marjorie Taylor Dreams and people like that who go online and call people names and et cetera. And there are people who are not on the level who, who maybe will never be able to coexist there or never be develop friendships there. But I have found overwhelmingly the opposite is true. We are not in our blood, Democrats and Republicans. We are in our blood. We're Americans. And we have an enormous amount. We're an amazing country with enormous amount of diversity. But there are common interests that bring people to Washington. And if I think members got together more frequently and got together in social centers, got together in any kinds of settings. You know, I played on the congressional baseball team, and that was, we divided up a big time, Democrat and Republicans, big time. We took it very seriously. It wasn't softball, it was hardball. We took it very seriously. We would practice every morning. You might have remember Steve Kalis got shot in another assassination attempt at baseball practice that morning. And there were some people snarking about, you know, what are they doing playing baseball at 7.30 in the morning? But that experience was a great one for me because the Democrats and Republicans around baseball, we would hang out on the floor and we'd talk about it. You know, we would hang, we would, even though we were, those games were serious, we enjoyed the camaraderie that, that was around having sports things going on. There's a gym in the House of Representatives and there was a community of guys and I was among them. You know, they'd play basketball, they'd hang out together. It was a place that you were not separated. And ultimately, I believe it made the place work better. 
And it's going to be taxed this year with such a narrow margin. Believe me, it's going to be. And today's world of politics, even in the time that I arrived in Washington in the mid-1980s as a staffer and left in 2011, changed dramatically. And I know it's changed. But the point that I was making is if we let guys hang out, and women obviously, hang out and spend some time together in common settings more and don't just separate them, and all of Washington is separated. In committee rooms, there's a Democrat and Republican committee holding, you know, antechamber outside. And the floor of Congress, there's a Democratic cloakroom, there's a Republican cloakroom where big guys hang out. Not that you can't walk into the other guy. That's frankly when you needed to find a Republican. Democrats would walk in, you know, ask around. It's not like that doesn't happen. It's not that, you know, but it's very divided up. And hopefully that changes because that'll be good for the country. And that's all we have today. And if you want to participate and have your question answered, at Rep Wiener is the Twitter handle. Anthony D. Wiener is Facebook. Wiener, W-A-B-C at gmail.com. I look forward to getting your feedback. And obviously, you can listen to the show on Saturdays, the middle. That's every Saturday between two and three. And then left versus right, where I'm on with Curtis Sliwa between three and four. You can get this podcast anywhere you get podcasts. You can really help out a lot by subscribing by recommending it to someone, by offering comments. If that's available on your podcast platform, this is available all over. And I look forward to seeing you again next Wednesday in the middle of the week. And this is the end of The Middle Unplugged. This is Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the industry. Call now or go to prioritygold.com.